Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, this episode is inspired, as so many of our episodes are, by just an incredible letter that we got from a listener. Now, I've never done a podcast other than this, so I have no idea if this is the case, but I feel like the inquiries we get from our listeners are just like on on a level that other people can only dream of. They reach out (laughs) to us with these sort of profound questions about how what they're experiencing in the world, whether they're teachers or administrators, you know, they want to know, they're trying to make sense of it. They want to understand the history of it. And so they sit down and they pen these very thoughtful missives to us and they inspire one episode after another. Yeah. The problem with that is that we get so many of them that it eventually begins to feel like we are, uh, not doing our due diligence here with regard to how often the show should be put out. Like, I think we need to to create our version of the daily so that we can sufficiently address all of the listener questions that we get. Uh, but uh, until until I'm able to quit my day job, I think that's not going to happen. Well, of course, the excellent questions and and feedback we get from listeners. It's not the only mail that we get. I feel like we should acknowledge that. That oh, we in, get a lot of a lot a lot of other kinds of mail. That's right. Well, I thought a fun way to kick off this episode would be to share some of that other mail with our <laughs> listeners. So we we get tons and tons of pitches from. PR folks who are looking to place their quote unquote experts on the show. And Jack, I wondered if you happen to have a favorite one of these because I know I recently got one that just made my head explode. I have one sitting here in my inbox right now, and I was just going to reply and say, you know, we can't have you on the show, but Jennifer would love to take you out to lunch. So before I send that reply, let me let me do a dramatic reading for our uh, audience. Hi, Jack. My apologies if you are receiving this email for a second time. I had technical issues with my email yesterday and received an alert that you did not get my message. Please consider sharing this nationwide challenge for middle school students with your audience. There are images and a video link below. Please let me know if you have questions or would like to talk with leaders at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site. And then it goes on in great detail about how we can connect with the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site. That I, you know, I just, I leap at the possibility of having that person on the podcast, but not as much as when I received this inquiry. Hi, Jennifer exclamation point, just like I write my emails. With the back-to-school season in full swing, I have a podcast guest for you. Blank, of learning products and services at EdTech giant Zovio. Now, I don't know Zovio, but I'm already really intrigued. She has 15-plus years of higher ed experience and is an expert on data analytics and online curriculum development. She can speak on key topics. The trend of education as a benefit to employees and the importance of upskilling. 
how virtual platforms will supplement the in-person learning experience, and how colleges can retain students by tracking outcome-driven student success. I think you'll enjoy a conversation with him. <laughs> Interested in connecting? Happy to coordinate. <laughs> you win. Mine actually seems incredibly interesting and substantive in comparison with that. So, so maybe I'll say that we're both going to have lunch uh, with the folks from the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, and uh, and I don't know how you're going to follow up with Zoom Tarot or whatever the uh, this pitch was for. It was for Zovio, Jack. <laughs> anyway. Me. Shall we move on to the actual question that inspired this episode? Well, let's let's do that because I have a feeling that we are losing people rapidly so far in this episode. So let's uh, let's get on track. Now for the question that really prompted this episode, it came to us by way of a former social studies teacher named Scott Abbott. He now works as the director of social studies for the Washington, D.C. public schools. He helps teachers develop curriculum, provides professional development, designs and implements assessments. And lately, he's been feeling increasingly confounded by what he describes as conflicting accounts of the history of standardized testing. And so he dropped us a line. My first question for Scott was how he decided to reach out to have you heard in the first place. Well, I have listened to the podcast for a long time, and um, I think you all do a great job of identifying issues sort of in the current education landscape. And then I really appreciate, as a former history teacher myself, I appreciate that you trace them back through history, talk to experts, so that it, I think, sort of builds out the context for people on, you know, where how did we get to this place in, in time in this particular issue? Um, and so I just finished uh, listening to your book, actually, I did the audio book, I waited for that one to come out, um, The Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and again, really appreciated the, the depth and nuance which you all have, have brought to the issues that are in the book and, and the other podcast topics that you have addressed. Well, thank you for that, Scott. As for the big question, I'll let Scott do the honors. Well, DCPS as a district has been engaging in work around race and equity for the last couple of years in particular. So as part of that, we've been bringing in some keynote speakers. So last year we brought in uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi. This summer we had Dr. Bettina Love from University of Georgia. And so her remarks touched on the history of standardized testing being connected to the eugenics movement, um, which is a claim that we heard last summer from Ibram Kendi as well. Um, and you know, subsequently, one of the social studies teachers that I work with passed along to me a history of standardized testing from the NEA, um, which offered some different evidence. You know, a lot of my background and training has been in you know, more modern, the creation of social studies assessments. I realized that there's a gap in my knowledge and understanding about the history of these assessments and you know, why were they created in the first place? Uh, what were their intended purposes and uses? And you know, sort of trying to make sure that we are not, we don't wanna be perpetuating sort of racist practices. Um, and at the same time, we do have an interest in trying to, you know, figure out what do students know and, and not know so that we can help to support them instructionally. So trying to navigate the balance between those different things. It's a great question and also one that is obviously really complicated. For help unpacking it, as they say, 
we needed an expert. Fortunately, we have one on speed dial, and because he's a friend of the show, he couldn't say no. Ethan Hutt is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's an historian of education who studies the intersection of schools, law, and policy, and he's currently wrapping up a book co-authored with our own Jack Schneider, examining the past, present, and future of the measurement technologies we use to assess student learning. And full disclosure, when Jack initially approached Ethan about joining us for this discussion about standardized testing tangled roots, the idea did not thrill him. In fact, the word he used was nervous. So we started out by asking him to explain the source of his anxiety. What makes me nervous about the topic is there's a lot of imprecision in how we talk about standardized tests. So sometimes standardized tests means IQ test, in which case, you know, what usually follows, like, you know, there's a racist history, it's attached to eugenics, like this is something we should definitely expunge from the system, gets merged with other kinds of standardized tests that have different histories, different uses, and different kind of current purposes. And so when you start having a conversation of like, let's talk about standardized tests, you need to sort of say like, good, let's talk about them, but we need to like create some distinctions. We need to be clear about what we're talking about, which history, and it's easy to pick on tests too. So it's like, sometimes you find yourself, uh, at least I find myself saying like, this is an important critique, but there's like a counter side that we should also consider. Please don't throw something at me while I, while I at least articulate the thought process behind that alternative view. It seems to me, Ethan, like one of the reasons why you would believe, it's at least a reason why I believe we need to be careful about the kinds of arguments we make when we push back against standardized testing, is that if we make an argument that is factually untrue, then it allows the other side to say, not only are we not going to listen to you, but you don't even know what you're talking about here. And so there actually are some very good reasons to push back against the kinds of standardized tests that we see in K-12 public schools. And some of those are, in fact, related to a kind of race-blind design and, you know, a marshalling of data in a way that has disproportionately negative impacts on low-income communities and communities of color. But that's actually quite separate from the evolution of IQ testing and the ways that that was used to advance racial injustice and economic injustice. So I just wanted to say that and then just give you a chance to react to that. I think that's exactly right. I think the problem is there are, as you say, different tests. So IQ tests, achievement tests, and then there are the ways that they can be used and the sort of political battles that they can be put to. And so we have to be careful both, you know, to get our to get our facts right, to get our history right, and then to be precise about, well, what is this test for? What's it like? What's its likely uses? And then do the benefits of what we gain from that information outweigh the potential costs or the potential dangers of of having it out there? And I think those those are good conversations to have. That's why that's why I'm excited to chat about this. Okay, to the history. When you hear present-day critics of standardized testing talk about its racist or even eugenicist origins, this is the history they're talking about. Around the turn of the century, there was a lot of interest in um, psychology, in testing, and thinking about distributions of human traits, the distributions of, of populations. 
And there were a set of testers, I mean, Termin being the most famous in the US, who were interested in basically creating an empirical basis to justify the racism of the time. So they were interested in designing tests that were obviously had racial class, all kinds of biases in them, and then using the results as a way of saying, okay, not only are these tests identifying something hereditary or genetic, but that also these results are fixed. So these results with white people at the top, well, more complicated, right? Northern Europeans at the top, Southern and Eastern Europeans lower, African-Americans even lower than that. Well, this is a picture and this justifies our unequal treatment because why would we want to educate all people in the same way when they obviously have different underlying characteristics? There was this history and a lot of that testing was designed to basically create an empirical basis and a, a, a justification, a scientific justification for unequal treatment. And there's no question that that history is there and that it created a lot of trouble and was just morally repugnant part of American schooling for a good chunk of the early 20th century. So what did those tests actually look like? What kinds of questions were on them? I wanted to know more. And fortunately, we have not just one, but two education historians standing by, both eager to indulge my curiosity. I think one example here is the reliance on cultural norms being depicted in images and expecting people to then sort of complete what's missing in the image. So, you know, what's missing from the dinner table there? And of course, the dinner table in question is a typical white, Christian, middle-class, you know, Northern European dinner table. And many of the things there would be foreign to students. And that actually, that approach mapped over into some standardized testing, uh, not just tests like the SAT or the ACT, which purported to measure, uh, you know, sort of innate intelligence uh, via what they called aptitude in the SAT test at the time, but also mapped over to standardized achievement tests used in schools, um, assuming that kids would know things like, you know, how many spoons should be set, uh, you know, what a, what a salad fork is, what a schooner is, right? That the word trunk might have various meanings, you know, which of course presupposes that people have enough stuff that would warrant a trunk to keep the stuff in, or that they would be traveling and that they would need a trunk for that purpose. And there's actually been a lot of care, which is not to say that standardized test developers are caring uh, in their development of these tests, but care to respond to those kinds of critiques of cultural specificity. Or how about this example, cited in Stephen Jay Gould's book, The Mismeasure of Man? You know, my neighbor has seen has has been having some queer visitors. First, a doctor came to his house, then a lawyer, then a minister. Um, what do you think happened there? And the correct answer uh, for people was, you know, was supposed to be death. So, you know, you were supposed to recognize that this is the order of, of things that happen when someone is supposed to die. So obviously there's a certain, um, you know, notion of like last rites, and this is like a particular religious uh, view. Uh, he did apparently allow a marriage was also an acceptable answer, but 
any other things were, um, were, were not considered. So people who are creative with the answer, people who didn't recognize that this was like, you know, what happens when uh, religious Christians die in a p- particular moment in history, things like that, where it, there is a cultural knowledge, there's an expectation of like the proper way of living or, or the sort of proper way of going about their life. And if you don't know that, then, I mean, why that would be a mark of your innate intelligence is, you know, you'd have to tell a real a real elaborate story, I think, to to even begin to explain that. Well, and of course, the way that you would test the validity and reliability of those questions would be to administer them to various audiences. And if you have the expectation that white children will outperform children of color and that high-income children will outperform low-income children, then those questions, which are really just reflecting cultural norms, um, will confirm your belief that they are actually measuring intelligence because, lo and behold, uh, the answers that students get align with your presuppositions about who's more innately intelligent than who was born uh, to toil. So now you have a better sense of what was wrong with these early quote-unquote intelligence tests, and now we need a little more context. The push for this sort of measurement in education in the U.S. really takes off in the early 20th century. To understand why, we have to consider what else is happening in public schools at this time. Americans, especially American educators, um, see this as a solution to, you know, I mean, we're seeing the massification of public schools. We're seeing a lot of, quote unquote, new immigrants, so immigrants from different places. And so the IQ test was, you know, a lot of uh, American schools saw it as a way of, um, we're beginning to see the separation of curricular tracks. And so it became a useful way, I mean, not only of just sort of a, a promoting a a certain set of eugenic beliefs about who who we should allow into the country, you know, ideas about, you know, purity of racial stock and things like that, but also in the context of schooling of justifying differential treatment. Um, This is why those students from Italy or from Eastern Europe really just need the vocational track. And so it became a, like all tests, right? Part of the value is the ability to give them on large scales. And so this is, this is something that's happening really in the 1910s, 1920s, though the IQ test continues to be um, a measure, you know, well into the 80s for, for special ed and other, you know, specific school assignment policies. It sounds like we have the answer to the question that inspired this episode. There is a racist, even eugenicist history to testing that we can't ignore. But as Ethan explains, that's not the only history that's relevant here. Standardized testing has a different origin story. It starts earlier and for some strikingly familiar reasons. At the most basic level, right, not to be overly literal about it, but a standardized test is literally just giving the same exam hopefully under the same conditions, to a set of students. And the origins of um, standardized testing in the U.S., most people link to Horace Mann in Boston in 1845, where, and this will sound familiar to people, uh, Mann was interested in, in basically demonstrating in hard figures that Boston schools were not as good as people thought. And so his plan was to give an exam 
to show the, that schools were not as good as, as people thought, that Bostonians should stop congratulating themselves. And that, the, you know, and this is where, you know, he begins to editorialize, but that part of the reason is because there was an outmoded uh, method of instruction, the curriculum was bad. And so the idea was that he was going to give these tests and the results, he was going to say, well, see, Boston's not doing as well as some of the suburbs. Our students are only scoring like 30% on this exam. Isn't that awful? We should stop congratulating ourselves. So there's this other use of the power in the form of saying, Everyone took the same test, right? This city over here, this suburb and Boston, and look at the difference. There's the, the sort of power of comparison, especially in something as, as open-ended as schools that's always been a part of American schooling. Um, and that, that has a, an older history that goes back to the early middle part of the 19th century. I want to follow up on that, Ethan, because I think one thing people will be interested in hearing about is the overlap between... IQ testing and the problems with IQ testing and standardized testing as it occurs in K-12 public schools and the problems with that, right? That these are separate but overlapping spheres. And one of the problems inherent to both is that there is a presumption that these tests are measuring something that they might not actually be measuring. In the case of IQ tests, the presumption is that they are measuring innate intellectual ability. And the presumption with standardized tests used in K-12 schools is that they are measuring schools uh, and school quality and possibly even also teacher quality rather than, let's say, inequality, uh, racial inequality and economic inequality. And I'm wondering if you'd like to you know, talk through that a little bit. So anytime we compare populations, and again, we do so under the guise of this is this is a sort of egalitarian. Everyone has the same chance to take the same test under the same conditions. How we talk about the results and what we think those results represent can be really problematic. When people see differences like the achievement gap, they can fall into some of the same traps as or make some of the same rhetorical moves that people um, supporting IQ testing do. So they so they claim that this that the differences that we're observing are because of some fixed irreparable problem with a school that we say, oh well, the poor kids are not doing as well, so they're not as smart. They don't care about as they don't care about school as much. They're not as committed. They don't have as much promise. And so we can we can again tell ourselves stories that that reify these differences and also that we can mistake what those what those numbers actually represent. Ethan says that he's sympathetic to arguments that critics make about the tangled roots of standardized testing, but he wants to make sure that we don't forget that accountability has also been a force for progress. We see this all the time where we say that this is a this is a reading achievement score. But what we're not seeing, despite the all the standardization on the test, is you know, the influence of say parental income or the fact that some students got extra coaching or extra help. They had better teachers all the way through. So we tend to take a snapshot and tell stories about those differences and make them really consequential uh, differences. In that mode, then you can see why people say, well, tests are, are racist. They are reifying a hierarchy in our modern school system. This isn't a history that's passed. This is a history that's repeating itself constantly. I think that's where other people start to say, well, knowing those results can lead to problematic conclusions, can lead to, to narratives of just 
kids not caring, our parents not caring, or schools being just totally backward, and also missing whole other alternative ways of, of thinking about learning or intelligence or enthusiasm for school. But then I think a lot of people want to jump in at that point and say, well, if we want to start fixing schools, or we want to start redirecting resources, or we want to make a political case for why we should do things differently, it starts with giving the public an account of where we stand. I think one question people might have is about other kinds of tests. So we've talked about the standardized tests that purportedly measure what is learned in school. We've talked about IQ tests that purportedly measure innate intelligence. But then there are these other tests that inhabit a kind of in-between space. For instance, the SAT test, which once upon a time purported to measure aptitude, that's what the A stood for. Then they realized it didn't, so they changed the A to achievement. But it doesn't do that either, so now SAT is not an acronym. Uh, It just stands for SAT. And so uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about these other kinds of tests that young people uh, and young adults are exposed to as they move through uh, the education system. In the case of the SAT, they are, they're really trying to make differences among students, and in part because we have a decentralized system where we, we want to have a national system of higher education where a student in California can apply this to a school in New York or Connecticut. And so we have to create these weird hybrid tests where if we were measuring the straight curriculum, we would say, well, that's not fair because there is no standard curriculum. Even in, the, in my home state of California, there's no standard curriculum. So it wouldn't be fair if we measured the actual, like, what did you really learn in school? So we need to measure something else. So we create these like weird hybrid, they're reading tests, but they're logic tests and they kind of measure math, but like not any particular subject. And so they're trying to sort of create this in-between space. And this is the same thing that happens with international comparisons, because if we were, the US system is not the same as China or Britain or France. And so the construct that we're measuring, according in the case of PISA, is the capacity of students to meet the challenges of the future, which is not what people think it is measuring when they see the, you know, the the table in the newspaper saying like, well, American kids are 25th. You know, they think, oh, our school system is the 25th best. Not like, well, on this weird kind of convoluted construct that doesn't really relate to how what they've learned in school, like they're kind of in the middle. It doesn't have that meaning. So we do this a lot because we want to find what seem like more meritocratic, seem like more egalitarian ways of of picking and rewarding, especially in something high stakes like college admissions. We want to create these sort of tests, but they end up having a very weird form because of of the structure of our school. If you were paying close attention way back at the start of this episode, you no doubt picked up on the fact that Jack and Ethan have been writing a book together about testing, which means they had a lot to say. There was a whole exchange about the different kinds of validity that, alas, remains on the cutting room floor. And that's because I was eager to keep us focused on the why of this episode. There is an intense debate taking place right now about what happens if we scale back our measures of what matters. And when I say intense, I mean the kind of acrimony and end-of-the-world predictions that I frankly can't do justice to. I needed some help. So I called upon another expert. I asked leading admissions testing and college access expert, 
as well as friend of the show, Akil Bello, to sum up for us the current state of the debate through a dramatic reading of headlines. Akil, take it away. Standardized test, merit-based, and even life-saving. Standardized tests could be in jeopardy in wake of Biden decisions, experts say. The faux righteousness of test-optional admissions. College admissions and the culture wars. Ending proficiency testing will only hurt students. Rejecting meritocracy clashes with America's basic principles. The West abandons meritocracy at its peril. Attacking merit in the name of equity is a prescription for mediocrity. The meritocracy is under siege. We're one step closer to axing merit from college admissions. Why calling merit racist erases people of color. The war on Asians, the death of meritocracy, and the assault on STEM. As U.S. schools prioritize diversity over merit, China is becoming the world's STEM leader. Death to merit! College admissions process descends into the abyss. Critics foresee Armageddon if colleges don't use SAT, ACT scores in admissions. Here's why that's wrong. Thank you, Akil. That was dramatic beyond my wildest dreams. Now back to Ethan. We wanted to hear his take on what's driving all of this, well, drama. People have a lot invested. These are very high stakes, and you don't want to minimize the extent to which parents and students have really committed to the idea that these tests measure something important, that they are providing access. And so I think there's there's in some sense, you know, worry about sort of unilateral disarmament. Like, you know, we're going to give this up and then, you know, we have we have built our whole identity around this or our whole sort of plan to get to college around these things. So, I mean, I think there's some some real anxiety around in, in everything in our education system because the stakes are so high. The problem is that in our super decentralized system, we now rely on all these tests for so many different purposes that just getting rid of them is really hard. And Ethan is not convinced that, say, eliminating the SAT would solve the real problem. It's one thing to say that the test is not measuring what we want it to do. It's not predicting what we want it to predict. We need we we need to get rid of it. It's not it's not serving its purpose. That is a different issue than, hey, the temperature on our competition to get into college is too high. Students are too stressed out. There's too much of a, of a zero-sum game. Getting rid of the SAT, yes, the SAT tries to rank students. Getting rid of the SAT does not eliminate our desire in our school system to rank students, to allocate opportunity to college based on achievement, based on how well people are doing. So getting rid of the SAT is not going to get rid of competition. In fact, someone would say it would, it's actually going to ramp up competition around every grade, every course, every AP class. So I think there are multiple things going on when, when we talk about the hysteria around like test optional stuff. A big thanks to Scott Abbott for asking the question that inspired this episode's journey, to Ethan Hutt for his good-natured willingness to tackle a topic that will please no one, and to Akil Bello for supplying some much-needed thespian flair. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss how the topic of testing 
fits into another reheated debate over the connection between genes and grades. And of course, we'll also be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment. Here's a hint. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently announced that the Sunshine State is phasing out standardized testing. What is up with that? If you want to find out, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to follow us into the weeds. Jack, as we were working on this episode, my new issue of The New Yorker arrived, and there was a piece in there about this long-running debate about the extent to which we're influenced by genetics. And I stayed up late reading it. The next morning, I penned a feverish email to you and said, you know, FYI, might want to take a look, take a look at this. Very relevant to our episode. And you wrote back almost instantly. And what did you say? I said that I had stayed up late reading it. So, you know, I didn't want to say that I beat you to the punch, but I I did beat you to the punch there, Jennifer. No, um, by late, I'm assuming you mean 9.30. Yeah, yeah, almost 10 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it was a wild night. So it's a fascinating article. And Jack, I'm going to put you on the spot and just ask you to paint in very broad strokes what, what it was about. Yeah, the piece focuses particularly on one scholar, Paige Harden, who's at the University of Texas, and she runs a genetics lab there. And it tells the story of an unfolding controversy around her work and the work of some of her peers, which is rooted in questions about whether or not intelligence is, as they argue, very much a product of genetics, that it is heritable or if it's more complex. And I was really interested by uh, her mentor, uh, who is quoted extensively here, um, who talks about his level of discomfort around attributing anything having to do with intelligence to genetics as if there isn't a really complex interplay between heritable characteristics, and inequality. And I'll offer here just a a very crude example, which is to say, which if we're thinking about black people in America and we're going to try to measure anything about intelligence, there is going to be a massive disruption to that effort by a long legacy of racial inequality, of black people being denied access to education, uh, of black people being more likely to live in poverty due to racialized structures and barriers. Um, And that because of that history, you are not simply going to be able to measure nature there, right? That nurture in the form of gross inequities uh, across long lengths of time is really going to play a confounding role there. And we can flash back a couple decades to uh, the book The Bell Curve by Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein, which made the case that black Americans have lower IQs than white Americans, and that that is a result of innate differences. And of course, there was ferocious pushback against that, saying that effectively, 
Those tests are measuring differences in access to resources, uh, that they aren't measuring uh, anything innate, that they are in fact measuring inequality in our society, and that we already knew that. We already knew that we have gross inequality in this country and that it's deeply racialized, and that any effort to peg that as innate or genetic or rooted in inherent differences is a deeply racist effort. And so uh, Paige Harden and others are you know, walking into this very fraught territory. I don't think anybody at this point disputes the fact that genetics play some role in human intelligence. But of course, the the problem is, uh, you know, how do you engage with that truth, with that idea, without making arguments about innate differences that will exacerbate these undercurrents in our society and across the world uh, that frame people of color in general, black people in particular, as being less intellectually capable than their white counterparts. So that I thought that's a good explanation, Jack. And and just a little bit of extra context. Harden is really making the case that progressives need to embrace this idea that heredity plays a bigger role in intellectual achievement. That part she's arguing that partly because the science is racing along, but also because people like us don't want to touch this for exactly the reasons that you just laid out. The right has rushed in to sort of seize this ground. But there was a great quote in the article that I thought just perfectly captured just how what queasy territory this is. So Hardin had an op-ed several years ago where she made this case, and she got a response from uh, from uh Dorothy Roberts, who's a professor of law, sociology, and Africana studies at one of your alma maters, that would be UPenn. And the uh, Roberts pushed back really strongly against Hardin's argument, saying, you know, there's just no way that genetic testing is going to lead to a restructuring of society in a just way in the future. We have a hundred years of evidence for what happens when social outcomes are attributed to genetic differences, and it is always to stigmatize, control, and punish the people predicted to have socially devalued traits. And the reason this the article just leapt out at me late that night at 9.30, 9.35, quarter to 10, was I thought, you know, it really sums up all of what's so fraught about the subject that we've just been unpacking with Ethan Hutt. Yeah, Right. You know, I'm thinking of something that Ibram Kendi has said over and over, which is that, you know, if we look at these test results, we can really only draw one of two conclusions. Either there are deep innate differences and, uh, you know, people of color are less intellectually capable than white people. Um, a deeply racist idea that has all kinds of counter evidence uh, standing up against it. Or we can accept that these tests are flawed. And I think that you know, one of the important concepts to keep in mind here is not necessarily that the tests are flawed in the same way they were, let's say, 100 years ago, where they're asking um, different kinds of people to respond to questions that are really being framed for a white middle-class audience. Um, but they're problematic in a different sense, which is that they're measuring something different than what they purport to measure, right? That 
They are measuring differential access to things in our society, whether it be uh, access to the dominant culture, as was so often the case in these kinds of tests 100 years ago, or simply access to the kinds of resources that would lead to higher scores on these tests. So often, as we've talked about in this show, um, we pretend that students come from equal backgrounds in an equal society and that therefore their scores on state standardized tests in grades three through eight as well as once in high school are reflections of the quality of their teachers or the strength of their schools. When in fact, so often, they're really a reflection of something else, right? The inequality in our society. And so we need to be really careful about these tests and what we think they're telling us because they're often telling us something. It's just that it may be different than what we are told they tell us. Speaking of standardized tests, I have a very fun treat for you and our listeners who choose to follow us into the weeds. That's our special subscriber-only area that you can access by becoming a Patreon supporter. Um, Jack, I don't know if you happened to catch this week that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced that Florida is going to move away from standardized testing, and we're going to use the freedom of the weeds to unpack what that does and doesn't mean. You look very intrigued, and I'm imagining that a lot of our listeners feel the same way. Yeah, I got a text from somebody who works in this field uh, who said, can you please explain to me what is going on in Florida? And then she followed up by saying, let me be clear, I often wonder what's going on in Florida, but I specifically mean what's going on with testing right now. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that in the weeds. For those who aren't interested in a velvet rope experience, there are lots of ways that you can support the show and be a part of this democratic community. Uh, we've got a Twitter handle, at Have You Heard Pod. There's often an interesting discussion going on there. Jennifer and I like to chime in from time to time. Uh, you can make sure that you're a subscriber, that you're getting every new episode as it's released, and go ahead and give us a rating while you're there. That helps people find the show. I've actually noticed that, you know, I say that, I say it helps people find the show, and I've gone on and I've typed in Have You Heard on these various podcast outlet. Uh, whatever you would call them, apps. Uh, and there are like many other have you heards and some of them show up above ours because they have more ratings. So like, let's, let's go folks. Um, and uh, I don't know what else I usually say. I'll just stop. Thanks for listening. Uh, we, uh, we're happy that you like the show. And if you do want to follow us into the weeds to figure out what on earth is happening in Florida, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a subscriber. We offer lots of cool extras, including a customized reading list, um, a free copy of our book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, if you subscribe at the $10 a month level. And you get to walk tall knowing that you're a supporter of a quality, a high quality education podcast. So on that note, Jack, are you ready to head into the weeds? I am slouchers like me who aren't ready to walk tall. Uh, you can at least be proud that you're in good company. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>